Well, Merry Christmas. Just uh, to put the parents' hearts at ease, if you're if your kids talk or scream, it, it's fine. It's probably my kids, so no, no, no problem at all. Uh, but as I've been kind of thinking about this Christmas, it reminded me of something that happened a long time ago. Uh, it was just before Christmas 2005. I had just started dating this girl. really liked this girl. We had served the previous summer in an orphanage, And so that Christmas, I knew I just had to give her the perfect gift. Most of you know that that crushing burden where you're you're just like, what what am I supposed to give this special someone in my life? Well, I was feeling that burden. And so I I thought about it. I thought about it. I, I might have even prayed about it. And then by what I thought at the time was divine inspiration, it came to me. I knew exactly what I was to give this girl that past summer, like I said, we had worked in an orphanage. And, and when you do that for 10 or so weeks, you, you bond with certain kids. And so I called up the organization that ran this orphanage and said, hey, um, is there any sponsorship needs for this particular boy that my girlfriend bonded with? And indeed there was. And so I set up a monthly support of my girlfriend's favorite child in the orphanage. And I gift wrapped that and gave it to her for Christmas. Perfect gift, right? Romantic, creative, thoughtful, memorable. Well, I sort of didn't think this one through. You see, we'd only been dating two months. We'd only gone on a few dates. I hadn't even kissed her. We were still doing the side hug thing. And now, by my own volition, we shared custody of a little boy. <laughs> right? Now, <laughs> nothing says Merry Christmas like that sort of gift, right? Uh, luckily, luckily, we never broke up. I sort of had to marry her at that point. <laughs> now, we know that not all gifts are created equal, are they? Some, like the gift I just described, are a bit creepier or a bit more intense than other gifts. Well, in contrast to the gift that I just described this tonight, I almost said this morning, tonight, we're going to look at a gift. It's a wonderful gift, a great gift, perhaps the greatest gift, the ultimate gift. Our text tonight revolves around a gift. Now, this verse is really, really short. In your English, uh, in the translations, there's only eight words in this. It's 2 Corinthians 9, verse 15. Only eight words. And yet it's packed with meaning, packed with theology, packed with goodness. You can think of this verse like a jelly donut, right? You see those jelly donuts? You look at it, it's glazed. You think it's just a glazed donut. Then you eat it and you realize there's sweetness inside. That's this sort of verse. There's sweetness inside this verse. 2 Corinthians 9, verse 15. I'll read it for us. The author Paul, by divine inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wrote, Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Now, in chapters 8 and 9 of 2 Corinthians, 
Paul has sort of a, a lengthy description and sort of exhortation to the church in Corinthians about giving, about financial giving. Now, the, now the, the topic isn't about like passing the, the basket. It's not about a, a weekly tithe or offering. That's not what's going on. What's going on in chapter 8 and 9 is Paul is addressing a particular situation and a particular gift needed for a particular situation. You see, the church in Jerusalem, made up of mostly Jewish Christians, well, they were going through a hard situation. There, were, there was famine in the land, and so people were starving. And so Paul kind of talks to different churches in, in modern-day Turkey and in Greece and encourages them to take up this offering to help with the plight of the Jerusalem church. And yet, as Paul's kind of talking about and finishing this exhortation for one church to give to another church because of things that they were going through, because of their, their poverty, Paul, in at the end of this, he just breaks out in verbal thanksgiving. That's what we find in verse 15. His attention was on this collection for the church of Jerusalem, but as he finishes, it's no longer on that. Now, Paul is captured by something else. In many ways, he's captured by someone else. You know the, the saying that giving is better than receiving, and, it, and that very much is true. Giving is a glorious thing. Paul explains that. And yet, it's not the ultimate thing. Paul goes from the lesser to the greater, shifting his attention from a good gift, this good collection, to the great gift, the ultimate gift, the greatest gift. Now, now when we think of Christianity, there, there are a lot of metaphors used in the New Testament. But perhaps the simplest and the clearest metaphor for Christianity is a gift. A gift perfectly captures the idea of what Christianity is about. And so Paul thanks God for a gift. You see, gifts by nature, they're not earned, are they? If you coerce someone into giving you a gift, well, it's no longer a gift. Or if you, you think you earn something, well, that's not a gift either. It, it might be a bonus, it might be a wage, but it's not a gift. A gift by nature is something given to someone that they might not have even deserved. Gifts, you see, are an act of kindness. They're an act of love. They're essentially an act of grace. They're a form of grace. This is why Christianity is perfectly captured by the image of a gift. Now, our world functions in other ways. I, I think our world functions much more like a merit badge, right? Kids, you, you understand this, this image. You work hard. You, you work hard and hard, spend many hours, and then eventually, by your merit, you gain a badge. Now, that's not a bad thing. It's not a bad thing to work hard and then gain the benefits and the rewards of working hard. It's not wrong to seek to accomplish something and to gain a, quote-unquote, merit badge. And yet, at the same time, Christianity isn't captured by the image or the metaphor of a merit badge. 
And I might just say, if it were, that would be a terrifying prospect. I mean, how do you merit God? Instead, Christianity is captured by the image of a gift. Now, this gift, it's not any old gift that Paul's describing, is it? Paul wrote and used a word right before gift in your English translations. It's the word inexpressible. Now, this word actually, it's not found in, in Paul's time. So what's going on is, what, what we think happened is, Paul was thumbing through his thesaurus, trying to figure out a word to express this gift, and he can't find it. Right? Every word cheapens it or just explains a slice of it, so he does what any of us would do. He just makes up a word. This gift is indescribable. It's inexpressible. Now, what is it? What is this gift? This gift in verse 15. Well, it's not the collection given up for the saints in Jerusalem. It's not the collection. Actually, we learn a little bit of a description of it back in chapter 8 in verse 9. Paul writes this, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, Yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. You see, the gift there in verse 15 of chapter 9 is, it's the gift of Christmas. It's the gift of Jesus Christ. You see, as Paul is looking at this this gift, this collection, it reminds him of the ultimate gift. All of the gifts under the Christmas tree, if we can put it that way, For Paul, all they are are just reminders of the ultimate gift, a gift of a child wrapped in love, lying in a manger in a town called Bethlehem. And so Paul, back in chapter 8, reminds us that this is is the story. This is the gift. It's the gift of Christmas. And this gift gift and this person and this child, it's unique. It's unique because it's not a rags-to-riches story, is it? It's the exact opposite. It's kind of a riches-to-rags story. Jesus Christ, who from eternity past, was in perfect harmony with the other two persons of the Trinity. This son who had all riches and glory and honor. This son who is unblemished and holy. This son who has no beginning and no end. He comes to our world. He enters our reality. John says that the word became flesh and he dwelt among us. He tabernacled. He set up his tent among us. God himself, born of the Virgin Mary, he becomes a, a zygote, then an embryo, then a fetus, then a dependent boy. Paul would also write in a letter to the church in Philippi that Christ, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself. He made himself nothing, became lowly, took the form of a servant, took the form of a slave. You see, Jesus Christ in the incarnation, in his Christmas coming, he he doesn't subtract from his divinity. He instead adds something to his divinity. He adds full humanity. And yet we can't just stop there. We can't just stop at the Christmas story. The gift that Paul describes 
is the gift of Christmas, the Christmas Messiah, Jesus come in the flesh. It is the nativity. It is Jesus born in a manger, but it's more than that. Jesus was humble at his birth, but he was humbled also by becoming obedient, obedient even to the point of death, death even on a cross. You see, this gift that Paul sort of breaks out in thanksgiving and celebration and praise is the gift of Jesus Christ from beginning to end. At Christmas, we celebrate the incarnation. That's what we're doing here. But our hearts and our minds, they can't stay. They can't stay in Bethlehem. They can't stay at the incarnation. They can't stay in Bethlehem for too long because this gift that is inexpressible, well, we have to fast forward and go to Calvary. You see, the incarnation of Jesus doesn't make sense without the cross of Jesus Christ and then his resurrection. I mean, after all, why would Jesus have come? What we see here is Paul thanks God not that Jesus is a great moral teacher, or that Jesus is a, a great example to follow. Or that Jesus makes my life better. Or, or if I follow Jesus, he'll give me promotion. That's how we might gift wrap Jesus, but not Paul. That's not the Jesus we find in our Bibles. Paul knew that when God himself sent Jesus Christ to be born in Bethlehem, he did so for a very, very particular purpose. Jesus Christ would be born but he would be born to die, and then he would die to be reborn. He would die to pay the penalty for sinners. So how do you capture that sort of goodness? How do you capture that sort of feeling, that joy? We'd all be like Paul, looking to just make up a word to give as an adjective to that good gift. Because in many ways we can't describe it. This gift of Jesus, born in Bethlehem and died on Calvary, is inexpressible. And yet our text does tell us that we ought to do something. We ought to thank God for this gift. Uh, growing up, I, like, like all children, we, I loved Christmas. But when Christmas would come and Christmas would go, in January something happened. If you had parents like me, you're going to laugh because you know exactly what happened. My mom and dad would sit us down at a table and they'd put cards in front of us and they'd make us handwrite thank you letters to everyone who gave us a gift. I hated it. I don't know why. I would complain. I would say my hand would cramp up and everything like that. But every year, my mom did everything she could to make us handwrite thank you letters. But then there is one year. There was one year that we woke up on Christmas morning and my brother and my sister and I saw that we got a Nintendo. Not one of those 64s or those Switches. The original, like the good stuff, right? I got Duck Hunt and the gun. I got it all. <laughs> and we were so enamored. We were so excited. We had hit the jackpot. It was so easy to write a thank you letter that year. It really was. It just, that gift just propelled our hearts and my hand to write a thank you letter. Keep those games coming, right? 
this Christmas, I assume that you're going to have a lot of wonderful food, wonderful laughter, friends, family. You'll exchange gifts. Hopefully, you'll give better gifts than I gave 15 years ago. But in all this goodness, in all that this season represents in, in laughter and joy and goodness, in all the little ways that we share gifts with one another, this is my Christmas plea to us all. Let those little gifts, those good gifts, those wonderful gifts, point us, point our hearts, our minds, our affections to the ultimate gift of Jesus Christ. You see, all of our little gifts, all the, all the exchanging of gifts, all the good food, what it should do is remind us of the spiritual feast and of the spiritual gift of Jesus Christ himself. That's my plea, to do as Paul did. To when we're thinking of gifts, when we're thinking of, uh, of, of everything under the Christmas tree, that we just don't stop at those gifts. But that those little gifts, those good gifts, those wonderful gifts, let them remind us of the ultimate gift of Jesus Christ. Born, but born to die, and then died to be reborn. Let's pray. Lord, we are so grateful for your Son. We are grateful for what the incarnation, your Son, taking on flesh, what, what that means for us. That we can have a relationship with you. That our sins can be forgiven. Lord, we, we, we pray that as we, as we celebrate Christmas, as we laugh and, and enjoy each other, as we eat good food, and give gifts and receive gifts. Lord, we, we pray, Lord, that all of those activities would remind us of the ultimate gift, the gift of having a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. We thank you for Christmas, and we pray this in his name. Amen. Well, in the book of Galatians, Paul says that he himself is entrusted with the gift of the gospel. But Paul's not the only one entrusted with the gospel, with this gift. You see, we too, as the church, are gifted with this gospel. And one way we are entrusted with this gospel is we're, we're called to preach the gospel and teach the gospel and share the gospel and also to maintain our gospel witness in this world. And one of the ways we do that is through communion. Communion is an act of obedience where the gathering of the church remembers with thanksgiving, Christ's coming and his dying, and also all that Christ has called us to be as we await for his return. 1 Corinthians 11 tells us to examine our lives before we partake of communion. Now, this means many things, but one thing this means is that communion is only for those who have, put, who, who have, who have come to an end of themselves and put their trust and faith in Jesus Christ which is normally communicated through baptism. So if that describes you, regardless of if, if you're a guest here or, or if you are a member of another church or you go to another church, we welcome you to the Lord's table. 
But if that doesn't describe you in any way, just as the elements are passed, just let them pass by you and take this time for prayerful reflection on what you've heard. So in a moment, the ushers are going to come forward and they are going to pass out uh, both of the elements, the, the, the juice and the bread, and hold them. Hold them in your hands. And after we sing, we're going to take them together as a sign of our unity. So join us as we sing, as we sing another Christmas carol, as we sing another story about Jesus and the Incarnation. First Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23 says this. Paul wrote, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Christ's body broken for you.
In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Christ's blood poured out for you. Let's pray. Our Father, we are astonished that you would send your Son. What a gift he is. We don't have the words to express how grateful we are that Jesus would not only take on our humanity, but that this Son would do so in order that we might not bear our own sin, but that he would bear our sin, bear our death in our place for our redemption. Oh God, we, we are an undeserving people, and yet with amazement we receive your grace with thankfulness. Thank you for loving us, a love beyond imagination. Thank you for patiently using us in all of our weaknesses. Thank you for sending your spirit to us that he might indwell us and comfort us and point us time and time again to our need of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And thank you that that this broken world is not our ultimate home. We look forward to the day when Christ will return, when sin and death will forever be defeated, and we will dwell in your presence forever. Oh God, that is our longing. We pray that that day would come quickly and that you would cause us, along with all the saints here on earth, to persevere until that day. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.